Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, September 26th, 2016. All I can say is, the end is in sight regarding the Heresy Olympics. I've been picking my way through. All I can say is, the next guy we're going to be covering, the one we're covering today, Darius Daniels, he wanted to win. He wanted to medal. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to stop, slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed yeah, that's right, they're self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, and whose small group curriculum we apparently need to be studying instead of the Word of God to test and see if what they're saying squares with what God's Word says when we take their out-of-context verses and put them back into context and check to see what it is that they're saying actually squares with what God's Word. And over and again, what we find here at Fighting for the Faith is there are few who are faithful in their handling of Scripture, and there are many who are, well, quite deceitful and uh, innovative when it comes to how they handle God's Word. And as a result of it, the innovators are not the ones who are teaching us what Scripture actually says. Yeah, they're not making disciples you know, disciples of Jesus, they're making disciples for themselves. That's how that works. All right, let's talk about what it is we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. (laughs) Where'd I put my notes? Here we are. Okay, we're going to begin with a vision-casting leader update. Yep, we have found a vision-casting leader. At least we've been, well, how how should I put this? Somebody informed us about this uh, vision-casting leader. He is in Manchester in the UK. We've reviewed some of his stuff here at Fighting for the Faith. His name is Glenn Barrett, and he is the vision-casting leader there at Audacious Church. Audacious Church in Manchester in the UK. And apparently he's been using uh, Ergen Canner's testimony enhancement spray. Yeah, listen, um, when your pastor (laughs) or vision casting leader is using Ergen Canner's testimony enhancement spray, um, that means that, well, they're liars. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, they are spinners of yarns and tall tales and things like that. And apparently Glenn Barrett um, <laughs> has um, – I'll let you hear it for yourself. We'll cover it. You know, He claims that he uh, defeated atheists in a debate, in a debate in, at Cambridge University. Well, as it turns out, when you talk to the atheists um, at Cambridge University – um, he was, uh, Glenn Barrett was never invited. The debate never actually happened. So yeah, we, we have found a case where a vision casting leader has been caught using Ergen Canner's testimony enhancement spray. We'll cover that. Then we have an update from <laughs> Nicole Crank. Oh man. Name of her message is titled bloom where you're planted. And this is, I mean, just in the first few minutes of this particular message, direct revelation from God and all kinds of doctrines not even taught in Scripture, all based upon a plant that she saw growing out of a sidewalk. <laughs> you're thinking, nuh-uh. Uh, yeah, I know you're thinking, nuh-uh, but it's uh-huh. Yeah, so there. <laughs> and then we will head over to Code Orange Revival as we listen to Darius Daniels uh, give his... Oh, yeah. Uh, revival sermon and uh, all I can say is Darius showed up with the hope of winning a medal I'm pretty certain he's going to make the medal stand not sure if he got a gold uh, on this performance that you know but we'll have to check with our judges on that and uh, and then in our number two we're going to head over to um, Liberty University and we're going to listen to an up-and-coming vision casting leader who is in the United States, his name is Darren Whitehead, but he uh, is originally from Australia, and he uh, gave a convocation speech at Liberty University. And here's the thing. Uh, there were some things that he said that um, clearly he's got his finger on the pulse of something wrong in American evangelicalism, but his solution and the irony of what it is that he says, uh, and including the vision casting thing that he talked about in his convocation speech, worth reviewing. So we will give it a review here at Fighting for the Faith. So that's today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. We have a lot of ground to cover. And since we're going to begin with a vision casting leader update, that requires us to do this. <laughs> Shit, I'm 
It's the night I'm gonna take the word and twist it Lobos Ministry Records and uh, their rendition of Foreigners Double Vision. It's called Casting Vision. So we're going to be heading over to Audacious Church out there, Manchester, United Kingdom. And uh, we have caught, <laughs> that's right, we have caught, thanks to some sleuthing on the part of a listener, uh, Glenn Barrett. Glenn Barrett, well, he's tested positive for Ergen Canner's Testimony Enhancement Spray. Here is the uh, video that the uh, atheists and agnostics out at Cambridge make sure to snag a copy of. Um, and the reason why they snagged this is because everything that you're about to hear, none of it actually happened. Here's Glenn Barrett. I was invited to a university to speak at the Atheistic Society. They said, Pastor Barrett, we would like you to come and get involved in a debate with all the atheists. I said, fine. I said, what's the heading? Well, what's, what's the caption? What are we debating on? And they said this. The debate is this. The premise is, there is no God. I said, okay. They said, yeah, the, the president of the atheistic club, he will stand up and he will share for 15 minutes on how there is no God. And then we're going to give you 10 minutes to prove to us that there is a God. I said, bro, I don't need 10. I only need two minutes. He said, come on down. So I went down, I won't tell you which university it was, but I, I drove to, to Cambridge, and when I got to Cambridge, I, I go into this lecture hall, right? And there's, I don't know, a thousand, eight hundred, a thousand students there, and, and, and the lead atheist, he gets up, and he's preaching, and he's spitting, and he's frothing at the mouth, and he's eloquent, he's brilliant. How can any rational person believe that there is a God? You've got to be stupid to believe that there is a God, and all these sorts of things, all the things that you've heard. And then I said, and now we're going to get Glenn Barrett, he's going to come up and tell us why there is a God. You ever read the verse, led like a lamb to the slaughter? <laughs> so I get up on stage and there's boos and hisses and all these sorts of things. And, and I come up the front. And I... Yeah, in case you're wondering, yeah, he is the husband of Sophia Barrett, the one we reviewed the sermon from last week. I said to the guy, I said, listen, uh, you spoke so eloquently. I said, come and join me on stage. So he came and joined me at the podium at the front there. And, and I said, you believe there is no God? He said, there is no God. You cannot be a rational person and believe there is a God. 
I said, okay, help me out with this. I want to show you something. And I drew a circle on a whiteboard like this. I said, this circle represents knowledge. Everything that could ever be known about any subject fits in there. All the sciences, all the arts. You're an intelligent man. You studied this university. How much do you know of everything that could possibly be known? So he took a pen and he drew that and he went, I reckon I know this much. I said, wow, you're intelligent. He said, yeah, I am. I said, that's brilliant. I said, so that's what you do know? He said, yes. I said, and that's what you don't know? He said, yes. But this does exist. You just haven't discovered it yet. Yes. Therefore, could God not exist in a dimension that you haven't yet discovered? Answer? Yes. Therefore, sir, I would suggest you're not an atheist. You're an agnostic and one step closer to knowing my Jesus. Yeah, I mean, it's a great story, um, except for the Cambridge University Atheist and Agnostic Society. I have on their Facebook um, posted that they don't know anything about this debate. It never actually happened. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is a case where, oh, it's a fascinating little argument. I mean, you know, granted, we've uh, heard this argument before, at least I have. Um, and somebody noted the fact that this sounds a lot like Mark Finley. Mark Finley, a, a YouTube video that Finley put together uh, years ago where he was actually invited to kind of a former Soviet bloc nation university. And something very similar to this happened. Yeah. So there you go. Um, Glenn Barrett. Yeah. And he's now tested positive for uh, using Ergen Canner's testimony enhancement spray. Moving along. Just close my eyes again Climbed aboard the dream weave train Trying to take away my worries of today Gary Wright's uh, Dreamweaver there. So uh, we're going to be heading over to Faith Church in St. Louis, and we're going to be listening to Nicole Crank as she explains to us a direct revelation that she received from God while looking at a plant growing on a sidewalk in, I think, West Palm Beach, Florida. And there's great theological significance. Apparently, God wants you to know and believe as a Christian regarding the significance of this plant growing out of a sidewalk in West Palm Beach. Here's Nicole Crank. We're doing the same thing we've been doing at our house. Sitting on the couch, watching the Olympics. Yeah. Got your favorite snacks within hand's reach because, you know, you can't watch them expend all those calories without eating some. It's like, wow, watching you work that hard makes me hungry. You got your favorite drinks on the left. You've got your feet up on the coffee table because your mama don't live here. And you're watching them going, 
Look at Simone flip like that. That is awesome, honey. I used to be like that back in the day. Man, we should go to the gym. We got to get back on our game. Has anybody been doing this? Give me a hand clap if this sounds like what's been happening at your house. And then we start looking at them and we think things like, what have I been doing with my life? I have just wasted my life. And we don't think about, it's not what we see in the light, but it's what's done in the dark that makes us successful. It's all those days we don't see, all those hours we don't see, all those things that aren't so much fun. And it reminds me of a few weeks ago, I was eating at a cafe out downtown West Palm Beach by the office. And um, it's concrete uh, sidewalks, asphalt alley right there, asphalt street. It's just a concrete jungle, right? It's a city. So while we're down there eating, I notice this plant. Now this doesn't look, this isn't a weed. This looks like something you would plant in your flower bed. And so I'm looking at it and I'm noticing that plant doesn't belong there. There's nowhere that, there's no reason it should have grown there. It was so much so I got out of my seat and I took a picture of it and and I brought it for y'all today. Show this welded online. Sunset. Look at that. So that plant, how many of you know, you would put that in your flower bed at home. But if Mm, (laughs) I don't think it would grow here in North Dakota. I just saying it looks very tropically thing, you know. I don't know what it is, but I've, I've never seen anything growing like that in uh, North Dakota. Put it in your flower bed at home along with a bunch of other, other plants. Or if you put it in the driveway at the church with a bunch of other plants, how many of you know you probably wouldn't notice it anymore? But because it was in this place, because it was somewhere it didn't look like it belonged, because it bloomed somewhere strange, it got my attention. And then what- Right, yeah. I mean, oh, can't you just see how this is going to now turn into something about you got closer and I looked at the root ball. I'm like, I need to see how this thing is growing. How many of you notice most of the roots are actually not even in the soil. So I started thinking and God said, bloom. Um, what? <laughs> really? You, you heard God say bloom. Okay. Bloom where you're planted. That plant doesn't belong in that space, but because that plant didn't belong in that space, get this, because that plant didn't belong in that space, that's exactly why you noticed it. You see, so many of us feel like we're in the wrong space, in the wrong place, at the wrong time, the wrong color, the wrong gender, the wrong age, with the wrong equipment, and we feel like we don't fit, and then we think, these are all the reasons why I can't possibly flourish, bloom, blossom in this space. What are you talking about? Since when does the Bible teach any of what it is you think it's teaching? And God said, bloom where you are planted. Again, you sure that was God? You sure that wasn't just you making that up inside of your head? Ask a lot of questions. I'm like, God, what does that mean? I I just need to know. And he's like, you ask so many questions. I'm like, I know, God, I want to know if vegetarians eat vegetables, what do humanitarians eat? So in discussing your really bizarre dialogue that you claim that you have with God, you decided to turn this part of your sermon, which is the least believable part, that you actually heard God say, Bloom. Um, you want to turn this into part of a comedy sketch? Right. And if corn oil is made out of corn, what is baby oil made out of? And why do they let him sell that? And then I asked him, what is this deeper meaning of bloom where you're planted? 
And he, right, yeah. What is the deeper meaning of bloom where you're planted? Yeah. I, I've been racking my brain over that one for months now. Months, yeah. I, yeah, yeah bl- the bloom where you're planted revelation. It's not found in the Bible, but yeah, I mean, it's deep. It's It's really ponderous, really important stuff. It's three pieces. Bloom. That's the piece that we have a control over. That's right. Yeah. Notice that she's now correctly exegeting the word that she got from God. He said, we can be a part of bloom. We get to choose. We get to decide. Do I have any control freaks in the house? So plants actually decide to bloom. Plants exert their free will when they bloom. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I had no idea the plants did that. Okay, some of y'all. Let's see. Do I have anybody who, if you're in the car with friends, you like to drive? Y'all are the control freaks. You just didn't know. You didn't know. Which is interesting because me and David both like to have control. So the way we've worked it out in the marriage is he drives and I do this. And we stay married. It's cool. But he says, bloom. We have a part in that. He says, where you are, where you are is a place. And then he said, planted. And planted is not done by us. Planted was not done by the plant. Planted is done to us. Everybody say, it's done to me. And that's where we get out of control and we start getting a little bit uh, unnerved and a little bit, why, why is it happening this way? So I start searching this out in the Bible and in Ezekiel 17, verses 22 and 23, you might want to write this down because when you go back. Ezekiel 17, verses 22 and 23. Um, hmm. (laughs) Why do I feel like she's proof texting? Ezekiel, by the way, is one of those books of the Bible. It is really tough. And I mean this, really tough to get what's going on. It is not an easy book to exegete. It is not an easy book to read. There are parts of it that just make you want to pull your hair out because so much of it is written in a way, I I think it it borders in many parts on being full-blown apocalyptic. It's, It's some interesting stuff. So let's see if we can figure out what's going on by looking at... The context, and by the way, the chapter heading <laughs> is not helpful. Chapter heading, parable of two eagles and a vine. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, there's something going on here in Ezekiel chapter 17, and it's already, you know from the chapter heading, it's parabolic. All right, uh, Ezekiel 17, I'll start at 16, see if we can figure out what's going on here. As I live, declares the Lord, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. That seems straightforward. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war. When mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives... He despised the oath in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. All right, so here we see what's going to happen to uh, the king there. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head, 
I will spread my net over him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him. Therefore, the treachery he has committed against me and all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from a lofty top of the cedar and I will set it out. I will break off the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will I plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar and under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and I make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree, make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. Yeah, I got to tell you, I got to tell you that verse 22 and 23, uh, just on a cold reading here, makes me wonder if we're not dealing with a messianic prophecy. That if Ezekiel uh, 17, 22, and 23 are not actually dealing with, well, Christ himself. And so let me check the... Uh, the Lutheran Study Bible, mm-hmm. Lutheran Study Bible, um, chapter 17, verse 22. Here's the note. It says, The kingdom of God, which came in a way beyond what Old Testament believers would know, the New Testament describes the fulfillment, and the church still awaits its final fruition. Okay, so there's a note regarding cedar. I return to the original imagery of the parable, the topmost of its young twigs, Nebuchadnezzar is figuratively described as breaking the top twigs, and Jehoiakim, the legitimate king of the Davidic descent. So, in the Messianic era, the Lord God will do something comparable, although on a vastly higher plane. Tender, unique expression, but one probably ultimately derived from the common description of the Messiah as a branch or shoot. One could think of Jesus' virginal birth as a tiny infant, though this may press the figure a little too far. High and lofty mountain, Zion was situated on a small mountain, but this messianic abode far transcends earthly geography. In other words, just looking at good scholarship on Ezekiel 17, 22, and 23, this text is parabolically pointing to Jesus. But, well, you know, Nicole Crank, I mean, she had a direct revelation from God in West Palm Beach, Florida, she saw a plant growing on the sidewalk, and God said, bloom where you're planted. So she's now went and found a verse to somehow talk about this, but the one she pulled out of her hat is pointing to Jesus, not you. Let's see where she goes. And read this later. You're really going to love this. And the Lord God says, who says? Let me hear you well then. Who says? There we go. The Lord God says, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it. I myself is the Lord God. And what is he going to do? He's going to plant it. 
Right, and the twig is referring to Jesus. I'm going to plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On a mountain the height of Israel, I will plant it. So twice, he tells us, I'm saying this, and I'm letting you know I'm planting it. I want to let you know today, you weren't in control of where you were planted, and you weren't in control of where you were born. You weren't in control of what day, what year, what decade, what area. But there is somebody and who was in control of that, and who is that? God. And it's not a mistake. Well, no, my, my daddy must have just played a good song that night. Or my mom and my daddy, they hooked up for one particular night. Or I don't even know who my daddy is. There's no mistakes with God. He is intentional. He said, I'm going to plan it. Not your mama, not your daddy, not the hookup. You are not a mistake. Let me be very clear about that. God himself has planted you. Uh, yeah. And there's the big problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's totally ignorant of the fact that this text is about Jesus. Yeah, it's pointing to Christ, not her, not you, not me, not your mama, not you being planted, not this plant. Yeah, she's completely oblivious to all of this. Yeah, she's also a narcissist. I think you get the idea. Talk about a blunder. Well, of course, you know, God told her, bloom where you're planted. And so she goes to the Bible and just happens to pull out a messianic prophecy. (laughs) and then tries to make it about you to fit the direct revelation she got from God the Holy Spirit, thus proving she didn't actually hear from God. All right, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with, what is this, day nine of the Code Orange revival, Darius Daniels. Oh, boy, is this a mess. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theatre presents Church Day Select. again, ladies and gentlemen, to this week's edition of What the Buzz, where we show you the latest, the greatest, the most fantastic and controversial inventions in the Christian world of tomorrow, today. 
In studio with me right now is the infamous Dr. Ergen Kanner with his latest product called Ergen Kanner's Testimony Enhancement Spray. Dr. Kanner, please tell us how you invented this marvelous product. It all started when I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. My conversion to Christianity was a relatively mundane one. Being a run-of-the-mill Christian is not what we call exciting. I bet. But now we try to tell my pagan friends why they too should be Christians. All they did was laugh at me and tell me how pathetic my Christian testimony was. I knew then that if my story of how I chose Jesus was more compelling, then I would be able to reach more people. It wasn't until years later that I created the spray that you see before you now. Well, what does it do? It does exactly what I says it does. For example, after using this spray, I was able to completely change my Christian testimony. I went from being a boring, middle-aged man to an individual who grew up under the oppression of Islam. I was part of the Islamic Youth Jihad, and I had been personally trained by terrorists of Al-Qaeda. When I moved to America in my 15th year, I was plagued by ridicule and bullying in my high school. People would call me Sand Monkey and push me around like a ragdoll. I wished to crush the infidels when they stood. Luckily for me, I found Jesus and accepted him into my heart before I committed acts of terrorism. Instead of a bomb on my back, I now had the cross of Jesus. That's an amazing story! Has your spray worked with other people? Yes, yes it has. Take a listen to some unenhanced testimonies from these non-actors about my product. Before I used Ergen Canner's testimony enhancement spray, I was a boring accountant working for a small firm in the farthest reaches of upstate New York. Me, being a Christian, was about as compelling as watching paint dry. Then I became a pirate from the 17th century who personally helped sack the Spanish main. I pillaged and plundered the heart and soul out of the Caribbean for many a year. Then one day... I miraculously accepted Jesus into my heart, and I was saved. I put up me cutlass forever and sailed to America with the hope of telling more people that Jesus died so that they might live in luxury. I was a simple stay-at-home dad who didn't have any real ambitions in life other than taking care of my children. I'd always go to my local mega church and experience the presence of God. My friends who did fantasy football with me never really found my Christian walk to be that compelling. So now, I'm an ex-assassin who carries out hundreds of missions for the government around the world. There isn't anybody on Earth that I couldn't kill with a pair of chopsticks and a stick of bubblegum. During one of my last missions, I came across the family who had told me the good news, that I had the power to forgive myself of all the debts I had wrought. In that moment, I felt a change come over me as I led Jesus into my heart, and I gave up my life of murder forever. I used to be normal and happy. Then one day my church counselor, Mr. Gary Sunshine, told me to go on an Emmaus walk to find Jesus. I guess I didn't trust in God hard enough because I was lost in the wilderness for over three months. Jesus never showed up, and Mr. Snuggles didn't make it. I had almost died from starvation, then a helicopter came, and... 
What are you doing here? That's not the testimony. You do not even use spray. Get out. Um, you promised me $5 for the testimony. I'm not paying you for that garbage. Get out. Be sure to pick up your very own bottle of Ergen Tanner's Testimony Enhancement Spray from Los Lobos Ministry Products. Order now. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash refermanda. And purchase yourself a copy of the game Reformanda and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that those people who claim to be hearing from God and then take messianic prophecies and make them about you, they don't actually hear from God. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. That's right, they're yellow and they are friendly. 
And <laughs> when you see our friendly yellow buttons, one says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, this is a monthly commitment that you're signing up for. You're signing up to contribute an amount that you get to pick. That's right. There's four ranks in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you, thank you, thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, moving along, we're going to do a little bit more uh, Code Orange Revival um, coverage. And because of what it is that you're going to hear, well, we better play this. Olympics thingy. My brain is killing me. My soul hurts. I feel like I need to take a bath every time we cover this. <laughs> I'm so glad we're getting near the end of this. Yeah, and uh, that being the case, because we are getting near to the end of our coverage of this year's uh, 2016 Heresy Olympics, also called the Code Orange Revival. That means uh, we are getting ready to reveal who the judges believe won the gold, silver, and bronze in a couple of different categories. And, and, oh, man. Um, I got to tell you what we're going to hear next. Uh, it's clear that this contestant 
this this athlete, you know, heretical athlete, came to Charlotte, North Carolina, in the hopes of meddling. Now, whether he makes it, you know, on as a gold medalist or not, I will have to let the judges pick. But uh, I think that this is definitely a medal-worthy performance on his part. His name is Darius Daniels. Never heard of him until he showed up at uh, Code Orange Revival. And I can see why Stephen Furtick invited him. Because uh, this guy has the T.D. Jake, Stephen Furtick, Narsa Jesus technique down. And uh, I'll just let him explain. His text is numbers 13, but... (laughs) What it says and what it means really doesn't matter. You'll kind of get the point as we go. Here we go. Um, I'd like for you to turn to Numbers 13. Numbers 13. Uh, and I'd like, I like to read a few verses beginning at verse 30. Numbers 13 beginning at verse 30. It's my conviction that God chooses to use the totality of the human personality in the preaching moment. So everything preaches. Well, I'm, I'm glad you think that. Um, Don't have a biblical text, so I'm really in no position to argue with you one way or another. I mean, it may be true, but it's it's all speculation, you know? And uh, quad non est biblicum, non est theologicum. If it's not in the Bible, it's not theology, and uh, you probably should not be teaching it. This is just your conviction. You see, the job of a pastor is not to actually teach his opinions. Mm -hmm, No. It's to open up a Bible and uh, exegete a text and point people to Christ. Not just the content, everything preaches. Your volume preaches, your body language preaches, your facial expression preaches. God uses everything. And tonight, for the few minutes I have with you, I'm giving you everything I got. My heart is full. I'm amped. I'm excited. And um, and, and I'd like for us to, to, to see... What lessons we can glean from a brief portion of this narrative in Numbers 13, verse 30. Uh, We'll pick up in the middle of a very critical conversation. Verse 30 says, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the. Yeah, I mean, isn't it weird? I mean, who of you, when you read. Um, you know, a story like let's say you, you're, you're at the bookstore, maybe you're on Amazon.com or, you know, maybe you see some kind of a novel that kind of piques your interest while you're, you know, in an airport books, you know, night book stand kind of thing. You, you know what I'm talking about? You know, you say, oh, you know, that book looks interesting. The cover is fascinating. How many of you, when you purchase a novel, you, you know, you kind of fan the pages and you kind of smell the new ink and you because books kind of have that new book smell, right? And then you just kind of, you know, randomly pick a page a third of the way through, and then you start reading. Who does that? Yeah, um, when a Bible teacher just parachutes into a text and doesn't care anything about the context or what's going on, it, it's almost, and I mean this, almost a surefire guarantee that what's going to come next is a twisting of the text because Bible twisters need to wrestle control over the story. They can't let God's word speak for itself, so you got to just jump right in in the middle somewhere. Otherwise, people will be on to you that you're not actually teaching what it says. Men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. 
They said the land we explored devours those living in it. And all the people we saw there are of great size. We saw Nephilim there. And listen to the last clause, which is incredibly critical. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. I want us to think around this thought tonight. It's the topic of tonight's teaching. And that is the role of revival. The, the role of revival. Elevation, please allow me to interrupt your regularly scheduled Code Orange revival <laughs> with this breaking news announcement. Revival is not just a season and space of refreshing, of renewal, and replenishing. Revival is also a space and a season of reintroductions. First of all, it is a season and a space where God reintroduces himself to us. It's in revival where we have Moses moments and he pulls back the curtain and exposes us to degrees and dimensions. Uh, Moses moments? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking through Numbers 13 and I don't see anything about any Moses moments. Where are you getting that? See, what was the purpose of him reading this text again? Because so far, everything he said after he actually read the text has nothing to do with what the text says. Moses moments. Yeah, I am not familiar with those. Of his presence that we had not experienced prior to this season. And the difference between... The difference between a moment and and a revival is that God allows us to linger in something longer than a moment. This type of exposure awakens in us an appetite that will no longer be satisfied with the mediocre and the mundane. Um, So revival is about no longer being satisfied with the mediocre and mundane? What are you talking about? It awakens in us an appetite that insatiably and passionately pursues the presence of God in ways that you had not pursued prior to this exposure. Because the danger of exposure is this. Once you've been exposed, you can't be unexposed. Well, in this particular case, I would say if we're going to talk about exposure, it's like exposure to a deadly virus. I, I, the Code Orange Revival, for sure, is dealing with you know theological waste that is, well, it has contagions in it that could cause you to come down with a bad case of heresy. Yeah. Once I've seen something, I can't see it. Once I've felt something, I can't unfeel it. I don't even know if that's a word. Once I've had unique encounters in the presence of God, my heart begins to beat for it. I... Unique encounters. This sounds very subjective to me. What does this again have to do with the 12 spies who went to spy out the land of Canaan? 
begin to long for it. My appetite increases and it is never the same. And my mother used to tell me growing up, Darius or Sean, don't ruin your appetite. Elevation, I want to tell you, it's too late. Your appetite has been ruined. Yeah, that now that they've tasted narcissistic heresy, they'll never have a taste for actual Christ-centered doctrine and biblical teaching. God has awakened something in these nine days that will change your appetite forever. Yeah, no, that's not God doing the awakening there. It's more like the devil doing a darkening. Revival is a space season of reintroductions, not not just the reintroduction of God to us, but it is also a season and a space where God reintroduces us to ourselves. Uh, <laughs> hi, I, I'd like to reintroduce you to yourself. Oh, well, I've been waiting for that. I mean, not, thanks for the reset there, dude. Yeah. Did you hear what I just said? Yeah, and it was utter nonsense and has nothing whatsoever to do with Numbers 13. It is a season and a space where God reintroduces us to ourselves. See, there's a you you hadn't met yet, and God wants you to meet. Um, what? <laughs> you got a biblical text that says that Numbers 13 doesn't talk about the you that I haven't met yet, or the me I haven't met yet. Where are you getting this? There's a wiser you, a stronger you, a more fortified you, a more resilient you. A uh, yeah, this is what we call scratching, itching ears. A peaceful you, a you that stresses less. And yeah, this guy's from heresy you. Praises more. That's a you that has untapped potential and capability. That yeah, no, each and every one of us is born dead in trespasses and sins. You're making me sound like I'm the bee's knees, like somehow I've got some wonderful, great God potential in me. And no, I'm the one who's a sinner who actually had to be saved by Christ. See, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. You hadn't met yet, and God wants to grab the old you and pull you face to face with the new you. Mm -hmm. Again, do you have a biblical text that actually says these things? I'm not familiar with any passage of scripture that talks this way. You can't see God differently without seeing yourself. Job put it this way after his ordeal and his uncomfortable encounter. He said in Job 42, verses 5 and 6, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see, have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself. You can't see him differently and not see you. Yeah, notice the words there. Job says he despised himself. Doesn't sound like you're helping people despise themselves. No, it sounds like you're helping them really, really think super-de-duper great about themselves, you know, in a narcissistic way. Let's take a look at that passage in, um, in Numbers 20, uh, sorry, Numbers 13. Numbers 13. The chapter begins, verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one of the chief, a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. Then it lists the people who went. It also includes Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb I think the son of Jephunneh. 
And so we'll skip to verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up to the Negeb and uh, go up into the hill country and see what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and uh, whether the uh, people who dwell uh, are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, or whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage, bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grape. So now we kind of know what's going on there, right? So they went up, spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rahob, near Lebo Hamath, and they went up into the Negeb and came to Hebron, Ahinam, Sheshai, and Talmai, and the descendants of Anak were there. Uh, Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt, and they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. And they also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there and the Amalekites dwell in the land in the Geb and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. Remember 13 verse 1 said that God was going to do what? Give them this land. Give it to them. The problem is they don't believe the Lord. They don't trust God. Uh So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report that that they had what they had spied out the land, saying the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Oh, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh were among those who had spied out the land. They tore their clothes and they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Notice Moses, Joshua, Caleb, uh-huh, 
they all are pointing to the fact that God is the one who is giving them. They believe. The rest do not. Don't rebel. Only do not rebel against the Lord. and Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a great a nation greater and mightier than they. So notice, God himself tells us what the problem is, and the problem is not that the people, that the children of Israel did not have a good view of themselves, that they needed to be reintroduced to how amazing they are. That is not the problem. The problem is they despise the Lord and they don't believe in him. Numbers 14, 11 makes that perfectly clear. Darius here, by parachuting in partway through the story, stopping where he did, kind of emphasizing the thing that he emphasized without any real context and without even letting God explain what went wrong. Oh, yeah, he's, oh, this is, this is, like I said, this is a, at least a medal stand. He's 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 won some kind of a medal at the Heresy Olympics for this performance. Differently, you can't see him as bigger and not see yourself as stronger. You can't see him as wiser and not see yourself as smarter because you are in him and he is in you. And your perception of him impacts the perception of yourself. You walk different. You talk different. You don't run from Goliath. You run to Goliath. You say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that dares to defy? Yeah, he's kind of building off of the John Gray nonsense oh you're david now you run to goliath right oh yeah because you are so amazing because revival is all about god reintroducing you to a you that you never even realized how amazing you was the armies of the living god he wants to reintroduce you to you And this reintroduction of you to you is not just for your excitement. It is for family, your assignment. I want to say that again. This reintroduction of you is not just for your excitement. It is for your assignment. Please hear me. Purpose requires that you have a proper perception of you. Right, yeah. See, the children of Israel there, they just did not have a proper perception of themselves. That was the problem. Except for Numbers 14 says that their problem was they didn't believe God. Did you hear what I just said? Oh, I heard it. Yeah, in all of its narcissistic glory, I heard it. Purpose requires that you have a proper perception of you because the course and the quality of our life is not just determined by how we see God. It is equally impacted by how we see ourselves. Right. And remember, I noted the fact that, well, Job despised himself. Right. So if we want to have a proper perspective of ourselves in order to have revival, we might want to consider what it is that the Bible says about ourselves. And, you know, I would go to like Romans chapter three, Romans chapter three, a fascinating text 
Um, here's what it says, starting at verse 9. What then? Well, are we Jews any better off? Well, no, for we've all already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, shut up, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So there, if you want to have a good, a good biblical perception about yourself so that you can experience revival, remember, you know, Job said that he saw the Lord and he despised himself. I also think of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah the prophet and his calling. Yeah, that's right. In the book of Isaiah, here's what it says, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations and the thresholds shook voice of him who called and the whole house was filled with smoke and i said woe is me i am lost i am a man of unclean lips and i dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts uh-huh. you want you want revival and a revival attached to a view of yourself you'd be wise to adopt Romans 3 and Isaiah 6. Sinner. Undone in the presence of a holy God. Guilty before him. Dead in trespasses and sins. Vile. Dirty with the gunk of sin all over you. You want to have a view of yourself? Do you, you think revival is all about being reintroduced to you? Well, let me reintroduce you to how Scripture describes you. Because what Darius is filling you with here is utter narcissistic gobbledygook. Not a bit of it is right. Our elevation is predicated on our insight. I want to know how is your insight, not how is your vision, but how is your insight? When you look in, what do you see? Do you see a grasshopper or do you see a giant? How is your insight? Mm, When you look inside of yourself, do you see a sinner in need of a savior? Because there are some battles that you won't fight if you're not seeing in right. There are some opportunities you won't pursue if you aren't seeing in right. There are some things you will walk away from prematurely if you aren't seeing in right. And I believe that God is doing something on the inside of us in cold orange revival. Yeah, no, this would be the work of the devil. This is not the work of God because you're not pointing them to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. 
you're teaching them to teach that you know them basically look at themselves and say oh i'm so amazing now i'm ready to go do god's work yeah no that's not how that works that's gonna help me see right i need need to see because could it be that i'll go as far as my sight lets, lets me. Could it be that God does have great and amazing plans for our lives, but could it be that his plans are his preferences? Could it be that his plans are his preferred future? Could it be that his plans are what he wants to do, what he's willing to do, what he's willing to turn heaven upside down to make happen? But, but, but could it be that God will allow us to live on whatever level we settle for? So, you know, finding your purpose and achieving your purpose, that's not by grace through faith. It's by works. Yeah, you, you, you better not settle. Could, could it be that he is? Yeah, the way this sets this up then is you sit there and go, well, I was told by you, pastor, that, that God had this amazing dream destiny thingy for me. Oh, yeah, he, he did. But yeah, it's your fault that you didn't push into it and 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 get to experience God's preferred future for your life here. Yeah, you've clearly fallen short. If, if only you had gotten your act together, you, then you would have experienced God's preferred future. But it's all up to you, you know. It's actually a shepherd who leads and expects us to follow. And this particular passage we just read here in Numbers is a picturesque portrait of this principle. It is a story that reveals, that that paints on the canvas of our mind a masterpiece of this very truth that I'm attempting to articulate. You see, we picked the story up in Numbers, but contextually, the story really begins in Exodus. You know, Exodus, everybody say Exodus. Exodus. See, see the, 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 the word Exodus means exit. Therefore, Therefore, the content contained in the book of Exodus is content that exposes us how God provided an exit for Israel out of 400 years of Egyptian captivity. Now, the title of the book is encouraging to me because it reminds me that God is a God of exits. Why is that encouraging to me? It's encouraging to me because if God is a God of exits, it means I'm never trapped. Oh. Man, boy, they, they are sure cheering for this. They're lapping this nonsense up. I may feel trapped. It may look trapped. People may call me trapped. But because God is a God of exits, if he's got to part the Red Sea, he'll part the Red Sea to get me where I need to be. He's a God of exits. He's a God of Exodus. And Israel, I want you to see the point here. I want you to see that this the thematic thread is, is interwoven throughout this entire narrative. Narrative. I want you to see this because you've got, you've got Israel 400 years in Egyptian captivity, right? And they stay there until they ask to come out. Read the narrative. Now, you are aware that Jesus Christ is all of Israel squished down into one person. He was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness, uh-huh. And Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was flanked by 
Moses and Elijah. And if you know your Greek, then you know that what were what were Moses and Elijah discussing with Jesus? His exodus. That's what it says. Uh-huh. So all of that actually points to Jesus, and this guy's having it point to you. Wow. They stay right there until they ask to come out. Text says, uh, narrative says that they begin to cry out to God for deliverance. So they have a problem. They talk to God. But the text says God starts talking to a man named Moses. They have a problem. They talk to God. God starts talking to Moses. They have a problem. They talk to God. God starts talking to Moses. They have a problem. They talk to God. God starts talking to Moses. They have a problem. They talk to God. God starts talking to Moses. Now that's a problem. Because I'm assuming if I have a problem and I talk to God, I want God to talk to me. Israel is sitting in a season feeling unheard, feeling abandoned, feeling neglected, having no idea that God's trying to convince the answer to accept the assignment. Just because God is not talking to me about the problem doesn't mean God's not working on the answer. Did you hear what I just said? I said, just because God isn't talking to me. Yeah, you're not exegeting any of these texts. You are, oh, this is a mess. Wow. About the problem doesn't mean he's not working on the answer. And Israel had no idea that help was on the way. But all of a sudden, unbeknownst to them, Moses just showed up without announcement. And that's the way God can work in our lives. We can feel abandoned and unheard and without warning. Moses shows up. God is having this conversation with Moses, right? This, this, this guy is so much as who never really quite fit in, whose life is really a life that has been replete with rejection. All he knows is his mother has to give him up. He doesn't know the backstory. He didn't know she gave him away to save a life, save his life. He just knows he's given away. So he grows up right in Pharaoh's palace. So here he is. He never quite fits in because he's too Hebrew to be Egyptian. But he's too Egyptian to be Hebrew. So I'm sure he grew up feeling awkward, not realizing that the awkwardness was not awkwardness, that the awkwardness was uniqueness. And, so oh, man. and see, you're just like Moses. I mean, you're, you're awkward, but that's because you are so unique. Sometimes you got to wait for your life to catch up, to give you a revelation of why you felt awkward in a previous season. Because what made you awkward in one season makes you relevant in the next. So not only are you David, you're Moses. Who knew? I mean, wow, that's amazingly awful. Mm -hmm. The problem is that this guy is absolutely fulfilling what Scripture warns about. Yeah, let me explain. In Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, here's what it says. 
Understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Notice that this is talking about what's going to be happening in the visible church in the days immediately preceding Christ's return. Mm -hmm. That people would be lovers of self and lovers of money. And that is exactly, exactly what we're seeing with the preaching coming out of Code Orange Revival and all of these people lapping all of this nonsense up because they are having their itching ears scratched and tickled by this self-loving, narcissistic twisting of Scripture rather than being convicted of their sins and brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. This is, well, demonic. That's about the only word that I can use to describe it. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're heading down to Liberty University to listen to a convocation speech by a vision-casting leader. That is sneaky bad. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. Boo! Boo! 
And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, uh, we throw them in the boo box? No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Of fighting for the faith, sermon review time. right. Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. We're heading down to uh, Liberty University in uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, as we listen to Darren Whitehead, a vision casting leader. Uh, grew up in Australia. Who is going to talk about the need for reaching people and believing God for big miracles and stuff like that? Some of what he's going to say, well, he puts his finger on a problem. His solution, standard, seeker-driven, vision-casting nonsense. Oh, and a narcissistic reading of Scripture, too. And, you know, and oh, it's just awful. This is the best way I can describe it. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Darren Whitehead from his recent convocation speech at Liberty University. Well, g'day, everyone. Absolutely thrilled to be uh, Jeremy Cowart's opening act today. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll be as quick as I can so we can get to the good stuff. But uh, really delighted. I have so many friends who, so many people that I love, uh, came to Liberty. And, uh, and so I am absolutely delighted to be. It's my first time ever to be at Liberty. And uh, I moved to the United States. Yeah, like three people were excited about that. That's really great. I, uh, all right, all right. So I, I moved to the United States in 1998 and uh, have just loved adopting your land. Thanks for letting me stay here. I married an American girl 14 years ago because I was about to get deported. And um, I, I mean, we fell in love too, so that worked. And um, 
So as you heard, uh, I have three daughters, uh, three half Australian, half American little girls. I have a 10-year-old named Sydney. And um, yeah, that's not a joke. Thanks for laughing at my kid. This is, this is really off to a good start. I, I realize it'd be like you calling your kid Lynchburg, right? But it works for me, right? Hey, Lynch, put that down. I don't know. Maybe that doesn't work. So uh, then I have an eight-year-old named Scarlett. You would call her Scarlett. And, uh, and, and I have a five-year-old named Violet. These little girls are the joy of my life. Marrying this girl from Nashville. Anyone from Tennessee here? All right, all right. So marrying a girl from Nashville, with a, with a mother from Nashville and a father from Australia, it, can, it, it creates a very confused kid. Uh, my little girls say, g'day, y'all. So pray for them. I'm sure it's all going to work out in their teenage years. Um, I, I, am, I am so glad because I, I want to talk about visions and dreams. You know, um, when the church began... Now keep that in mind. Don't, let, don't forget that part. He wants to talk about visions and dreams. Acts chapter 2. Peter stood up and he pronounced that there were two groups of people that were going to make up the church. He said, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. He's quoting from the prophet Joel. And he said, uh, he said, young people will have fresh vision and older people will dream fresh dreams. Visionaries and dreamers. The church is supposed to be, when she's at her best, made up of people with fresh vision and people with fresh dreams. God wants. So now, now this becomes a law. I mean, are you having fresh vision and dreams? Well, you better get to it, you know? The community of his people, the redemptive plan that he has unleashed on this planet to be made up of fresh vision and fresh dreams. And I believe that God wants to give you fresh vision and fresh dreams. When I was growing up in Australia, I, was, uh, I grew up in the church. I grew up in a, in a, in a church environment, and I was very underwhelmed by the church. And uh, the way that I managed to be able to, like God gave me a vision was through a verse, my life verse. How many of you have a life verse? You have a, you have a life verse? Some of you don't even know it. So he achieved having a dream and vision through a life verse. Yes, a, you know, a life verse is a verse that you say, I want my life to be about the values of, uh, of what is contained in this verse, the themes in this verse. You write it on the mirror at home or on your phone or whatever it may be, but you would say, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm taking this verse and I'm making this the clarion call of my life. If you don't have one, there's 31,000 verses in the Bible. Just quickly read them all and then choose one, right? <laughs> so my life verse has captured the angst of my teenage soul growing up in a small rural church in Australia. It's from the minor prophet Habakkuk, or you might say Habakkuk. Uh, if you've got a Bible or you've got an app or whatever, turn to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 2. It says this, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. As a teenager, this verse captured the angst of my soul. You see, in this verse, we have contained this idea of the gap between what we hear that God does and what we experience in our lives. Has anyone felt that gap before? 
You ever felt the tension of what you... Yeah, actually, that's not what's going on in the book of Habakkuk. And the reason I say that is because, you know, I've read it, and when you take a look at what's going on in Habakkuk, it's not a very long um, book at all. Um, the oracle, Habakkuk chapter 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How Or how or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed, justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is praying for God to, well, do something about Israel, who's gone rogue and evil. So, you know, for him to just take Habakkuk chapter 3, Lord, I've heard a report about you. I've heard about your fame and your work, O Lord. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Yeah, that, that's, he's like totally ignoring That's the problem with the life verse. You have one of them uh, nine times out of ten. No, uh, 999 times out of a thousand, it's going to be out of context. Read about in the scriptures or what you hear about from church history or you've heard of great awakenings or great revivals or extraordinary things that God does in people's lives. But you look at your own life and you say, I don't experience that kind of stuff. There's a gap. So already we're off to a bad start. Yeah, is there a gap between what you expect a God and what you're experiencing? Well, yeah. It, well, it's all going to be about you doing the right things in order to activate God so that He can finally begin to do things that He's done in the past. Between what I hear about and what I and how much do you want to bet that Darren Whitehead will put himself forward as a guy who's experiencing the things he says that he longed for you know the miraculous and stuff like that experience growing up i felt like the church was was an environment where no one was expecting god to do anything we would be singing songs or we'd be hearing messages and and there was a sense that the last person we expected to show up was jesus there wasn't preaching where there was an expectation that our church was going to rise up and a movement of the kingdom of God was going to come upon the city and sweeping people into the kingdom. Yeah, um, movements. Yeah, um, you'll notice the, the expectation here. It's as if somehow he despises the institution that God has set up. There's some problems here. There was just a sense of, well, church is a collection of positive lifestyle principles, and we'll just kind of do what everyone else does, and we'll go to church on a Sunday. And that just didn't do it for me. In fact, I found the church environment to be an underwhelming uh, community of people that just seemed to pretend things were better than they really were. Going to church was like a WWE wrestling match, right? You're kind of looking around, and everyone's pretending that this is real, but we all secretly know it's not, right? Some of you are going, wait, WWE's not real? What's next? Easter Bunny? Oh, anyway, so... Yeah, my question is, what are you talking about? What he's describing is quite vague. I'm looking around and I'm just underwhelmed. And so I, when, I, when I graduated from high school, I moved to the nearest city and started going to school and, and started to work. And, uh, and, I, and I just stopped going to church. It just didn't feel relevant to me. And then one day someone invited me along to a church. It was a, co it was a collection of college students. 
And I went along and I saw something that my eyes had never seen before. I walked in and there were a collection of people that were worshipping and there was a group of people that were praying and it was what was such a sense of belief and tenacity and faith. I didn't even know there was a category of people that existed like this, but there was such a sense of belief that God wants to do something extraordinary in the days that we're living in. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the thing. Christ has told the church to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching, and he's going to be with us always until the end of the world. God does want to do something. He wants people to be brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. He wants Christians to go and proclaim the gospel, to preach the the law, to convict people of their sins and show them the need for a Savior, and then preach Christ and Him crucified for their sins so they will trust in Him for their forgiveness, life, and salvation. Truly, God wants to do some things, okay? In fact, God wants us to do some things because He's chosen that people are brought to penitent faith in Christ in him through people taking his words upon their lips and preaching them to people. And I didn't quite know what to do with it. I was partially repelled and partially drawn in. But I came back the next week and the next week and the next week. Then I heard that there was a group of of dudes, a group of blokes who were getting up at 4 a.m. in the morning and they would go and pray. They would go to the top part of our city. There was, a, there was a mountain that was sort of surrounding the city of Adelaide. And they would go up at 4 a.m. in the morning. And as the sun came up in the morning, they would pray the presence of God down into the city. And they would say, God, would you do something extraordinary and unprecedented in the days that we are living in? Would you do what only you can do in this time in history? And and from up on top of that mountain, you could see universities and colleges and schools and churches and businesses, and they would be praying, would there be an open heaven above our city? Well, I wanted to check this thing out, so I got up and prayed that there be an open heaven. So you're starting to hang out with a bunch of people who clearly have some very sketchy theology. Or I am in the morning as well, and I went up with them, and I stood on this mountain as they started to pray. And as I was looking down over this city, I thought, what does God see when he looks at the world? What does he see? What does he see when he looks at India? What does he see when he looks at Russia? What does he see when he looks at China? What does he see when he looks at Australia or the United States? And I started to think I'd never been to the U.S. before. But I started to think that the the United States is disproportionately positioned in the world as a place of influence. I grew up watching American television, even on the other side of the world. I learned to say the alphabet with an American accent, thanks to the export of Sesame Street. Appreciate that, you guys, by the way. Uh, all these little Aussie kids are walking into school, and, and all of these school teachers have to teach them to speak correctly, or, or differently, anyway. So, so, so I, I realized that I, I'd been raised even on the other side of the world, on American television and American brands and American music. And I, and I thought to myself as I'm up on this mountain, if God would do something in the United States, if there was a spiritual awakening in the U.S., it would reverberate around the world. And I thought, I want to go there. It is disproportionately positioned to be a voice to the world. This is coming from someone who's not from your country. So I went to see, I was working at a radio station at the time. I went to see my boss who, uh, 
who, who's a Christian, and I said, I think God... So notice, he's the example here. ...maybe calling me to go to the U.S. He said, well, what makes you think that? I said, I don't know. I just have this sense. He said, well, do you have a job over there? I said, no. He said, do you have a place to stay? I said, no. He said, do you have a work permit? I said, no. He said, do you have enough money to get over there? I said, no. He said, well, it doesn't really sound like God is calling you to do that. And I said, well, I didn't even think about it. I just said, well, maybe I'm supposed to, like Peter did, just walk out on the water. He's like, you mean across the Pacific? Yeah, here's the thing. When Peter walked out on the water, Jesus told him to come. Yeah, that was the first part. He said, Lord, if that's you, um, tell me to come out to you on the water. And he didn't even believe it was Jesus, you know, walking on the water. That's kind of the idea. And then Peter took his eyes off of Christ and ended up sinking. And Jesus ended up chiding him for his lack of faith. Walking on the water is not what any of us are called to do. I mean, no, no, no. Figuratively speaking, figuratively, you know, he's like, well, maybe. So that night I'm doing my utmost for his highest by Oswald Chambers. Some of you have done that, right? And uh, so I open it up, and it's Matthew. Yeah, really bad theology in Oswald Chambers. Not a very good devotional at all. Total, utter confusion of law and gospel. 14, and it says, Peter walked out on the water. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And I'm reading this, and, and, and the words are just like leaping off the page. And I start highlighting this up, and I take it in, and I show my boss the next day. I'm like, look at this. I think God's speaking to me. Over the next couple of weeks, this is like the reading of omens. Someone called from the U.S. and said, I think I may have a job for you. Then, then someone else called and said, hey, we feel like God has placed on our heart that we're supposed to give you some money. I said, well, let me pray about that. Okay. <laughs> someone else calls and says, um, we, have a, we have a home and, and, and we have space in it here in the U.S. We'd love to have you come live with us. And then I had to go to the American embassy to get a work permit. So I go there and they tell me that the kind of... So who are we hearing a lot about? Jesus or Darren Whitehead? We're hearing a ton about Darren Whitehead. Permit that I'm applying for, I'm not eligible for. And I said, can I apply for it anyway? They said, okay. So I submit my application and a week later I go in and I stand in line with a bunch of other hopeful immigrants in Melbourne, Australia. And I get to the front and the INS officer looks at me and says, uh, your name's Darren Whitehead. And I said, yes. And they said, here's, here's your file. And they hand me my passport and I open it up and I look at the visa that I am not eligible for. Now, I decided to not look at them and say, do you realize I don't qualify for this visa? I just closed it and I ran for my life. <laughs> I got down outside of the American embassy and I, and I looked at this thing again. And I thought, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. And now I'm starting to see this in my own life. I felt like God was pulling me into a story that I was not writing. Uh huh. So notice here, yeah, twisting of scripture, reading of omens, um, everything focused on him, already bad theology. Um, this is. A mess. And he's not pointing people to Christ. He's not exegeting a biblical text. He's exegeting his subjective experiences. And clearly, this, uh, the only explanation is, is that this is God. Well, considering how he's twisting and manipulating God's word, the other option is, is that's the devil who 
maneuvered all of this stuff so that Darren Whitehead can come to the U.S. and teach false doctrine. Jumped on a plane. I came to the U.S. I got picked up by a family, and they didn't know any of my story. This family had decorated a room for me. They painted it, decorated a room. They hung two pictures on the wall. One was a picture, an abstract picture of a man dancing on top of water. And an- yeah, again, more reading of omens, which is forbidden by Scripture. One was a picture of a man walking on water towards an escalator. And I just had this sense of calling. I had this sense that God was giving me a vision for what he was calling me to do. Lord, I have heard of your fame. This is my life verse because it reminds me that my life is not all about me. It's all about him. Now, Yeah, and this sermon's all about you. It is not about Jesus. That's the weird irony. I've got to tell you, as an immigrant to your country, I've got to tell you that, that the United States is a spiritually dangerous place to live because we can be lured into thinking that life is all about us. Right, by preachers like you. I mean, that's the weird part. Here you are warning about bad doctrine and you know, self-centered doctrine and theology, and the weird thing is you're preaching about you. You're actually modeling Narcissus. That's the weird part. The job of a pastor is to preach the word. You begin with the text. You rightly explain the text. You point people to Christ. You point out their sins. Call them to repent. Call them to believe in Jesus and trust in him and what he's done. You're not doing any of that. You're basically telling us to trust that all of these subjective experiences that you're exegeting somehow demonstrate that you are part of some movement that God is trying to do and wants to do in the world today. Uh Uh-huh rather than pointing us to what Jesus told us to do and what he said. When I first moved here, my brother came and visited me from Australia. We went to a restaurant. I ordered a Coke, he ordered a Coke. Then uh, when the the, the waiter came back and gave us the check, my brother looked at it and said, "Um, excuse me, you've made a mistake here. I I drank one Coke, my brother drank six. I, I noticed that it was obnoxious, and yet you've only charged him for one. And I interrupted him and said, no, mate, in America you get free refills. He goes, free refills? God bless America! (laughs) I mean, you people don't know what you have. The first time I ever came to see a movie in the United States, I went with a bunch of Americans, we go in and they say, get some popcorn and get a drink. That's what we do. I'm like, when in Rome, right? So I go over and and I say, you know, I'll have some popcorn. Thanks, love. They said, you know, what size? And I said, I don't know, give me the biggest size you've got. They hand me like this 22-pound bag of popcorn. You, you Americans don't understand what the rest of the world's like. Then they say, do you want a drink? And I said, sure. They said, what size? I said, just give me your biggest size. Listen, Americans. Every other country in the world has small, medium, and large. Not in America. You people begin with large. Then you add extra large. Then you have extra, extra large. Then you have the super-sized Mega Max Thirst Crusher. I didn't know whether to drink it or to bathe in it. The top of it looked like a hot tub, and the bottom of it was so small so you could still get it in the cup holder. God bless America! Yes! I'm walking away with this thing, right? 
And the girl says, excuse me, sir, there's one other thing you need to know about this size. Because you got the largest size, you're eligible for free refills. Yeah, I'm like, how long's the movie? A month? This is a spiritually dangerous place to live. Because it's easy for us to think that our lives are all about us and about our comfort. And, and this is my life verse because it says, says the guy who's preaching about himself. What I've heard of your fame. Then why won't you preach Jesus? Preach him. Fame is something we know a little bit about in the United States. Living in Nashville, everyone's got their story of seeing Carrie Underwood at Home Depot, right? Like, everyone's got their story of running into fame. And what we have in this text is the incomparable fame of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is my life verse because this is what I want my life to be all about. Then why are you blowing this opportunity to, to preach about Christ? 6 verse 9 says, all the nations you have made, all of them, and they will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. And so far you're bringing glory to Darren Whitehead's name. The word glory in the Hebrew is the idea of weight as in heavy. The name of God is heavier than any other name. It has more substance. It is more important. It is more substantial. It is incomparable to any other name. Lord, I've heard of your fame. And I stand in awe of your deeds. This is the distinction of who God is and what God does. A stand in awe of your deeds is the idea of the people of God having a standing ovation. It reminds me of a few years ago, there's a friend of mine named Rachel. I was living in Chicago, and uh, this girl, Rachel, was completely disillusioned with the church. She just saw so much hypocrisy in the church, she just felt as though I'm not even sure if any of this is real. Yeah, hypocrisy generally exists in uh, churches where they do not distinguish law and gospel correctly, and they teach pietism or some form of self-righteous theology. It's all up to you. Yeah, and you you're you got to you got to earn your salvation and you got to yeah, uh-huh. That's where that thrives. So she stopped going. She became a professional makeup artist doing makeup for models and celebrities for photo shoots and stuff in downtown Chicago. And then one day an older lady from our church who hadn't seen her in months calls her and says, "I feel prompted to call you." I'm going to South America on a a mission trip for a month, and I think you're supposed to come. Do you want to come? And she said, okay. So she ends up going on this mission trip, and they start working with women who were trapped in the sex trade. And they started working with these women, helping them break out of the cyclical lifestyle of of, of being in the sex trade, helping them with different skills and, and, and with different abilities. And she told me when I was working with these women... I just had this sense that the kingdom of God was crashing into my world. She said, I've never felt the presence of God like that before. When we came back to Chicago... Yeah, again, notice the subjectivity here. She said, I cannot go back to being the person that I was. I've got to find the same level of need. 
So she goes to a strip club in downtown Chicago. She approaches the owner and she says, can I serve the women in this strip club? He says, what do you mean serve them? She said, well, I, I do makeup professionally. I can, I can help them. He said, okay. So she went backstage and she just started to serve these women. She told me that sometimes after she built such a relationship with them, sometimes she would put worship music on backstage while the women were getting ready. Now that's going to mess with your theology a little bit, right? But they're listening to oceans before the women go out and perform. And she's just serving these women. She used to bring, she used to bring uh, sermon CDs and give them out to these women. Um, CDs. Uh, uh, there was once these round silver things. <laughs> and uh, you, you, you can Google it. But the, the, so she brought a box of these CDs and, and, and she started giving them out to these strippers. There was one stripper by the name of Angela who took a CD, she listened to it, she came back and said, that was amazing, do you have more? And she gave her a box and she listened to every one of them. She came back in and she said, I've never heard anything like this before. So Rachel said, do you want to come to our church? She said, do you think they would let someone like me in? She said, of course. So Rachel brought Angela to church and I met them in the lobby. I knew she was coming. We sat down at this table. Now, I'm going to point something out here. I don't need a liver shiver. I don't need goosebumps. I don't need to read omens or anything like that to know that I'm to bring the good news of the forgiveness of sins to everybody. Mm-hmm. That's right. So this is a story. Let's just put the best construction on it of a Christian who had a heart to go and share the gospel with those who are strippers, to tell them of the love of Christ so that they would be brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Do I need to dream dreams or have visions or anything like that to do this? No. All I need to do is read my Bible. Jesus forgave tax collectors, prostitutes, uh-huh, that's right. The good news of the forgiveness of sins is for everyone. Do I need to do any of the things that Darren Whitehead is, well, doing in his kind of chasing after this wind of doctrine and this wind of move of the Spirit and all this? No, not at all. I just need to read my Bible and believe it. Together, and, and Rachel said, you know, this is my friend Angela. And Angela looked at me, and she was kind of tough and, and looked a little mean, and she said, so you're a pastor, huh? And I said, yeah. She said, do you know what I do for a living? I said, yeah. She said, Rachel here tells me that Jesus offers to forgive me and cleanse me for the choices I've made, for the decisions that I have done, and give me a fresh start. You're a pastor. Is that true? Before I even got a chance to answer, her voice started to quiver and, and, and little tears welled up in her eyes. I'll never forget this. She was wearing these false eyelashes that looked like spiders were coming out of her eyes, right? <laughs> and I'll never forget watching the tears sort of creep up these eyelashes and then down. And in that moment, I was just reminded again, this is what Jesus does in people's lives. It was like the gospel came crashing into this moment. And I was reminded again 
Jesus takes the broken. He takes the disappointed. He takes those who are fractured, those who are wounded, those who are hurt, and he, and he pulls them back together and he cleanses them and he restores them and he gives them a brand new start. And I look back at Angela and I said, yes, it's true. A couple of weeks later, I got to baptize Angela and the front two rows. Yeah. The front two rows were filled with strippers. And there were dudes going, I love this church, yes! But what I will never forget is as I'm baptizing Angela, I look over and I see Rachel sitting on the front row and she just cannot take it anymore. And she just springs to her feet and she starts to clap. And then all of a sudden someone else stands and then someone else stands and the people of God rise to their feet because they are astounded at the beauty of what Jesus does in people's lives. Now, this is a story of the forgiveness of sins. This is a story of new life in Christ. This is a story that, you know, is ultimately about evangelism. And all I got to do is read my Bible, and I will know that this is exactly what the church and what Christians are to be about the business of doing, going and telling everybody, whether they're strippers or whether they're white-collar, blue-collar workers, whether they're the CEO of a corporation or the person who, well, works for a garbage dump. Christ has bled and died for them. This is, a you know, that's the thing. And all I need is God's Word to tell me that this is what the church is to be about. And it was a beautiful thing. Lord, I had heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. The the, the next part of this verse says, Renew them in our day, in our time, make them known. This reminds me that we need to ask God. This reminds me that we don't need to be content with this gap in our lives, hearing about what God does and not experiencing it, but that we need to ask him, God, of all the great things that you have done throughout history, would you do it again? Would you do it in our lifetime? Would you do something unprecedented? Would you do something? God is bringing people to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins every day, all over the world. What are you talking about? He hasn't stopped doing that since the day of Pentecost. Something unexplainable. Would you do something where we're looking at one another and we're just going, I don't know, God just showed up. Don't you long to see that? Sure. So that's why I'm a gospel preacher. I see this happen in the lives of the people I preach to all the time. The, The thought of living just a regular American Christian life, following a bunch of positive lifestyle principles. Yeah, you're describing not Christianity, a false form of Christianity. For 70 years, and then dying and going to heaven, without seeing the fame and deeds of God renewed, repeated in our day. 
That is a thought that keeps me awake at night, asking God, pleading with God that you... Yeah, then why aren't you preaching Jesus? Can you, can't you imagine, with as huge of a crowd as you have there, and everyone required to show up to the convocation, that the person whose fame you really want people to hear about, wouldn't that require you to actually preach about him rather than yourself? ...would do something like the prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. Asking God for great things is a theme all throughout the Bible. You know that? We see this over and over again. We see uh, in Psalm 2, it says, Ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You are aware that Psalm 2 is about Jesus, right? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set them uh, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. That's what it says in Hebrew. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. So notice the lead verse that he leads off with this doctrine he's trying to teach. Oh, we need to ask God to, to do it again. The lead verse is one where literally it's about Jesus. And yet the one whose fame he wants, he just desires to have make known, he's not actually preaching about him. Darren Whitehead is preaching about Darren Whitehead. The irony is bizarre. James 4 verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. Yeah, James is not saying for us to ask for God to do incredible things, you know, and stuff in our lifetime. No, that's talking about us asking God for our needs. God. Matthew 7 says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Yeah, again, this is not Jesus saying you need to ask God for signs and wonders and for him to do amazing things. Context there in uh, in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. One who seeks finds. The one who knocks it will be open. Or which of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if, he, if then... You who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is about trusting Christ, trusting God the Father to meet our needs. What is the fresh vision that God is wanting to breathe into your life? Yeah, none of those texts have anything to do with fresh vision. You're twisting God's word. You guys have a lot of runway, runway ahead of you. What is God calling you to do with your one and only life? What are the visions? What are the dreams? What are the things? Yeah, the vision is to get false teachers like you to no longer be listened to by people who are Christians. That he is placing in your heart that are going to require him to show up in an extraordinary way. These are the things we should be praying for. Um, No, I don't see any precedent in scripture for that. And the scriptures you've quoted were all out of context. 
these are the things that we go before God and we say, would you do something extraordinary in this time in history, God? This oh, it sounds so audacious. Yeah, I mean, we already have Jesus' marching orders. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching all that he has commanded. It's extraordinary. It's a miracle every time someone is brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Our prayer, would you hear us pray this? So a couple of years ago, I was working at this church in Chicago, and I sensed God's telling me to go plant a church. Uh, here we go again. Another personal story. Again, we're hearing a lot about this guy. Uh, yeah, Darren Whitehead. Not so much Jesus. I want to contend for the future of the church in the West. I want to contend for the future of the American church. It is the vision of my life. Jesus is coming back for his church. He loves his church. It is the redemptive strategy that he has unleashed in this time in history to sweep people into the kingdom of God. I love the church. So I felt God calling me that I, I needed to go start a church. Start a church where there's a bunch of college students. In Nashville, there's 100,000 college students. It's one of the fastest growing cities in America for people in their 20s. People in their 20s are now one of the largest unreached people groups in the United States. You know that? And I'm just praying where it looks like things are ending, that the Spirit of God would pour in and it would look like things are just beginning again. Something fresh, something new would emerge with college students. Yeah, something fresh, something new. How about uh, the same thing God's been doing for two millennia? That would suffice, don't you think? With, with 20-somethings. So we decide that we're going to go plant this church, and um, it was terrifying. I'm thinking I'm going to leave a, a good-paying job. I've got a wife, I've got three kids, and, and I'm going to go start something from scratch. We started to meet in my living room with a small group of people. Now, it's quite a change to go from 30,000 people to three people, you know? And, and there were definitely moments where I'm looking at my kids and I'm thinking, what have I done? But we just started to pray that God would renew, he would repeat his fame and deeds in the day that we're living in. We decided that we were going to, to sort of get our church started, we were going to have a, a vision night where we would invite people to come. Uh, a vision night. Yeah, see, he's a vision casting leader. Where in scripture does it teach pastors to cast vision, receive vision, and then cast it? Oh yeah, it doesn't. And, and, and so there were a number of people that were saying, tell us about when the church gets close or when it's getting ready to start. Let us know and, and we'd love to be a part of it. And so we decided that we would send out one final email to say, we're going to have a vision night. We're going to have an info meeting and we're going to invite people to be a part of it. So I asked if I could borrow my friend's house. He was going out of town. He said, sure, I've got enough seating for 18 people. I said, well, that should be fine. That should be great. So on the morning of the vision night, we start adding up the number of people that are coming and we realize that 80 people are coming. And I'm thinking, well, this is a problem. I look at my friend Jake, who's with me, and I said, what are we going to do? And he goes, well, we need some tables and chairs, I guess. I'm like, where are we going to get tables and chairs? He said, I don't know. Do we go to Costco and say, I'll have a pallet of tables and chairs, thanks, you know? He looks at me and he goes, all right, you plan what you're going to say tonight. I'm going to go find tables and chairs. I said, okay. He said, I'm going to go home, I'm going to quickly have lunch with my wife, and then I'm going to go find them. 
So he, he leaves. He lives about three minutes from my house. He's pulling into his driveway. As he's pulling in, there is a U-Haul that is parked right next to his driveway. He gets out of his car. He walks around the back, and the roller door happened to be up on the U-Haul. He looks in the back of the roller door. Yeah, again, what is the deal with all these people who call themselves pastors telling all of these personal anecdotal stories and drawing their theology from that rather than opening up the Bible? And, and it's, this, this truck is filled with tables and chairs. He goes up to the door. He knocks on the door. They hadn't met before. He said, excuse me, are these your tables and chairs? He's like, yes, stalker, they are, you know. He said, do you think I could borrow them? He says, well, what do you want them for? He says, well, we're planning a church. It's a new kind of church. And, and, and we need some tables and chairs. because No, it, it's not a new kind of church. I mean, the whole seeker-driven, vision-casting leader, megachurch model has been around for a long, long, long time now. In fact, too long, because it's not biblical. More people coming than we expected. He goes, well, why don't you take them? He said, in fact, why don't you let me come and help you or help you set them up? He's like, Okay. So they jump in the front of this U-Haul, they drive over to a friend's house, and they start setting up these tables and chairs. And as they're setting them up, they start talking. And this guy says, well, what kind of church is it going to be? And he says, well, it's going to be a church that wants to restore broken people. It wants to restore discouraged people, people that have kind of lost their way. And he looked and he said, well, I've lost my way. He said, my wife and I are separated right now. My kids can't understand why we're not living in the same house. He said, do you think I could come tonight? He said, no, you're not invited. No, he didn't. No, no, no. He said, no, he said, no, he said, of course you can come. So two hours later, this guy shows up with his kids and one of his kids recognizes one of my kids from school and they run up and play together. And all of a sudden, we've got this room full of people sitting on this guy's tables and chairs. And I start sharing the vision of what we believe God is calling us to do. Yeah, so apparently you have your own unique vision that um, is not in line with the, uh, the Great Commission. I mean, the rest of us, you know, mere mortal pastors who don't receive visions from God. I mean, we just kind of have to go off of Matthew 28, you know. <sighs> Yeah, no, no unique vision for, for me, uh, even though I'm a pastor. No unique vision for the congregation I serve. No, we're just doing it old school, you know, going and make disciples of all nations, you know, baptizing, teaching all that Christ has commanded, you know, that's that really bold, boring stuff. And so I say that there's three kinds of people in the room here. There are those who, like, when we get started, you'll check us out to see if it's for you or not. There's another group that would say, you know, over the next several months, we can meet once a month and we can come and pray with you and come and help you. But then there's the last group. This is the launch team. This is the collection of highly committed people that are going to say, I'm going to meet every single week, sometimes twice a week. We're going to pray for extended amounts of time together. Some of us are going to fast and pray for the 40 days leading up to the beginning of the church and ask that God would do something extraordinary. And before I get a chance to be done, the tables and chairs guy puts his hand up in the middle. I'm like, yes. Not taking questions, but yes, you know. He says, I'm on the launch team. I'm thinking, let the history books of our church reflect that the first person to join our launch team is the tables and chairs guy that we just met a couple of hours ago. And we all just had this sense 
that God was up to something. And we're looking at each other and we're shaking our heads and we're just going, isn't it amazing that God provided tables and chairs? And this guy interrupts us and goes, that's not the miracle. He said, my life is falling apart and God sent a pastor to my door to invite me into something. That's the miracle. That's the days that we're living in. That's extraordinary. Yeah, imagine how many of these miracles would happen if Christians, you know, would go and share the gospel with people in their neighborhoods, you know, tell them about Jesus and the forgiveness of sins, you know. This started to produce this this infusion of energy and belief and faith in us that God is working in the days that we are living in. Uh, Of course he is. He's never stopped. And God wants to breathe vision uh, no. <laughs> no, that's not true. Dreams. No, that's not true either. God wants to give us new ideas. God wants to spark us with creativity. No, God wants us to do what the church has been told to do and has been doing for 2,000 years. Christianity has survived, like, for two millennia before any vision-casting leaders showed up. Yeah, we're just to be busy about the job of making disciples, baptizing, teaching all that Christ has commanded. Yeah, nowhere in Scripture are we told that God wants to give us, you know, dreams, visions, fresh creative ideas and things like that. And if you sit there and go, well, it's in Joel and Peter quotes it on the day of Pentecost. Yeah, uh, Peter quotes that as being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Yeah, I'm just saying, you know. Two years into our journey, we're meeting at a school, and then we're meeting at a YMCA. We planted two churches. Two years into our journey, people used to say to us, are you ever going to plant, or are you ever going to build a building and be a real church? And, and, and we used to say sort of facetiously, we think God is going to give us a church building one day. At the two-year mark, we're just doing our thing, and one of the largest churches in the city of Nashville approaches us and says, do you think it would be possible that we could merge with you guys and you guys can have our two buildings, 50 acres in the center of the city, and you could just like unleash this vision that God has given you. And over the next couple of months, all of that took place. And this church joined our movement and God just gave us. Joined your movement. That's weird. I mean, I thought that the church is an institution created by Christ and all churches are part of that institution. But you're talking about a church that joined your movement? Huh? $40 million worth of assets to be able to pour into this vision. God wants to do extraordinary things. So what about you? What are you asking God for? Are you praying these pathetic little wimpy prayers? I mean, how- oh no, yeah. I mean, now we're going to have to evaluate our our prayers. Are they pathetic and wimpy? You know, like do you pray, "Our Father who art in heaven"? Oh, that's pathetic. That's wimpy. Or are you praying, really hairy, big, audacious, we let's shake the world kind of prayer that are. It infused with dream vision thingies. 
So many of the Christian community pray. We get together and we pray and we, and we, so we ask every person that we've ever heard of who is sick and we write it down and then we just say, God, we just pray that these people will be okay. These are defensive prayers. Um, yeah. I don't know anybody who only exclusively prays that way. Yeah. What about the offense? Yeah, see, when I pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, there's offense and defense in it. Prayers. What about speaking into the future and saying, God, would you spark our minds with... Speak into the future. What are you talking about? Fresh vision and fresh dreams, and we will pray them into being. We will... Pr- uh-huh. You're going to pray things into being. Really? Wow. You must be a god or something. God, that you would do something extraordinary in the time in history that we find ourselves in. God wants to unleash things that have never been done before. And how do you know this? Did God tell you this? I don't find that in the Bible. Where does it say God wants to unleash things he's never unleashed before? I'd like a biblical text for that. In the kingdom of God. Like there are going to be ideas that are going to be dropped into your minds and dropped into your hearts. Uh, Via download, apparently. Wow, we're going to be getting downloads. Oh, that's exciting. Things that have never been attempted before. Things that have never moved and and, and happened before. Ideas in industries. And ideas in in, in different parts of the the social sector. Yeah, you sound like you're influenced by the NAR. So what I want to do is I want to pray. I want to take a moment before I introduce Jeremy. I want to take a moment and I just want to ask that you would just still your heart. And that you would go before him and you would ask him that he would renew his fame and deeds in your life, in your family, in liberty, in this school. That God would do what only God can do. You know the unexplainable that cannot be explained by really good leadership and clever people and great... Yeah, the the stuff that uh, Sid Roth tries to traffic in. ...and a good budget and... No, 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 I'm talking about the stuff where God just shows up and you just take your hands off and you go, I don't know how this happened. This is the things of God in the days that we're living in. Let's pray together. Done. Yeah, I I think you get the point. I mean, that was a total train wreck. The best way I can describe that is total, utter train wreck. I mean, there was some stuff in there, I mean, that clearly was truthy. But rather than bringing us back to Scripture, back to the Great Commission, back to, listen, this is what Christ has told us we're to be about the business of. We're off topic. We're off mission. We need to get back to proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins and telling people about Jesus and his mercy and grace so that they can be forgiven and renewed and, you know, things like that. Uh, I mean, that's kind of the sort of the subtext, but it's mixed with this whole other thing. The vision casting, the joining our movement. We're part of the new thing God is doing talk. Avoid that stuff like the plague. Because I guarantee you, I guarantee you dollars to donuts, the Darren Whitehead, because of what I heard, he's actually off mission, not on mission when it comes to the Great Commission. 
So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>